we're looking at the servant songs. Well, if we go to Isaiah 42, um, we'll see again. Um, I might just put them up on our, our slide, but I think it's worth going through them to build up the importance of the argument that the Apostle Paul, he quoted from the law of Moses. Now he's quoting from the prophets. Now, there are um, so many similarities. Here's just a sample uh, that we have on, on our slide. But just before we look at it, this whole section, as we know, uh, is based upon God being the one true God, the rock. So it's on our slide. But Isaiah 44 Verse eight, uh, God says, Fee not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have not I declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. Now your margin will tell you that that word God is the word rock. It's the same word rock that we saw there in Deuteronomy, the Hebrew word sir. So just as Deuteronomy says that there's a rock that you've, you've, you've been unmindful of. That's the rock of Israel. So Isaiah in Isaiah 44, verse 8, there is no other rock. I know not any. Verse 9, they that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or a molten, a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, and they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. They shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with the tongs, both worketh with coals and fashioneth with hammers. The whole section is in real detail about graven images and the things of men. That's what the Apostle Paul is standing right slap bang in the middle of. The greatest graven images in the world extant at that time. And he's talking uh, about what Isaiah says about all of these things. For example, verse 15, uh, uh, he, he, he kindleth it, he baketh bread, he maketh a God and worshipeth it, he maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. Uh, and verse 17, he prayeth unto it, said, deliver me for thou art my God. Right? And they have known, and they have not known nor understood that if we have shut their eyes, they cannot see. So there's a huge, we know, emphasis on the things of the world and all of the pointlessness of it, that it cannot help. And that is contrasted with the rock of God, just as Deuteronomy did. So does Isaiah. He is the rock. Now, let's just have a look at Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, the first of the servant songs. And I want to draw some links with, Isaiah, with Acts chapter 17. So here is the, the servant who has been chosen, my elect. I put my spirit upon him. Now we know the Apostle Paul says in verse 31 of Acts 17, he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now your, your margin will tell you that that's the same idea. He's the man who he's chosen. So the Apostle Paul says, look, this is the man. It's the servant of Isaiah. If you want to know, this is the man that God has selected or chosen or ordained. It's the servant, the son of God. And what will this servant bring? He will bring, Isaiah 42, verse 1, judgment to the Gentiles. Verse 3, judgment unto truth. Uh, verse 4, he shall set judgment in the earth. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says to all those who would listen. This man who's been appointed, he's going to judge the world. And there's going to be a day when that's going to happen. The question for you and I is, are we going to respond to it? This same God, Isaiah 42, verse 5, 
that created the heavens and stretched them out. He spread forth upon the earth. That's such an incredibly important point. Acts 17, verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing if he is Lord of heaven and earth. It's absolutely crucial point. And you might think to yourself, well, was it crucial in those days? Yeah, the Epicureans did not uh, really necessarily believe that. How many people do we come across today who don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth? And uh, while we were between talks, someone drew my attention to that. Deuteronomy says the same thing. So just to get completeness between them, Deuteronomy 31. We did read it, but I'll just uh, highlight it. Deuteronomy 31, verse 28, of course. Moses says he's called heaven and earth to record against Israel. So the same thing about God made heaven and earth. They're God's witnesses. But Isaiah 42 says of this God that uh, created the heavens of the earth. It says that he giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. He giveth them breath. That's what Acts 17 says. He giveth to all life and breath and all things. That's what it says in Genesis. Breathed into man and uh, the breath of life. He became a living soul. And this God has set this servant to be a light, to lighten the Gentiles. Is that not what we see in verse 30 of Acts chapter 17? Of course it is. The graven images We've already seen them in Isaiah 44, but here we are in Isaiah 42. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Do you think God is going to stand back and let the graven images take his glory? Well, as we look, as we go through this, there is a time that he is going to do that. He is currently overlooking the way things are happening in the world so that he might call people to him. But the Apostle Paul is, is the instrument by which he says, I'm going to use my time wisely and tell people that this is the one true God. And we have to keep on asking ourselves the question, do we have the same zeal that the Apostle Paul had to declare to those who would listen? We're not asked to do so on, on, on uh, the mountain. Look at Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah 42 verse 11 says, let them shout from the top of the mountains. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing in Athens, shouting from the top of the Arian Pygon. We're not asked to do that. Or very rarely speak to great groups of people uh, at a judgment seat. Some of our brothers and sisters have done that over the years. And there are biblical records of doing so. But very often it's the still small voice of God, the little word that we could speak up. Surely we can have enough spirit within us to speak up and speak of God's word in the little occasions that might be given to us in our lives. Isaiah 42 verse 9, the former thing has come to pass and new things do I declare. Well, as the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17, they want to know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. This is the new doctrine to the, Athe uh, the Athenians, but it is in fact the former things that were already known. They've been shouted from the mountaintops in ancient times. They were shouted from the mountaintops in Athens. And it's for you and I, brothers and sisters, to shout from the mountaintops now. If we don't do it, who will? Who will call out the world? Because Isaiah 42 verse 14 says, God says, I have long time holding my peace. I have been still 
and refrained myself. Now will I cry. And that is God through verse 12. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praise. Right now, we're in the time of the Gentile dispensation, but God is keeping silence, just as Acts 17 says in verse 30. The times of this ignorance God winked at or God overlooked. The time of the fact that the majority of the human race does not know his name or his truth, and instead, with the works of their own hands, they have corrupted themselves. God is overlooking that in his long-suffering ways. He's allowing his name to be blasphemed and his glory stolen so that more might be called here and there. But Isaiah and Acts 17 tell us that for a long time, yes, he's holding his peace. He's refrained himself. But then will come the cry. Look what it says in Isaiah 42, verse 11. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Now, your margin, you might have that that's not the rock, which is the tzir, which is the rock in Isaiah 42, 44. That's the rock of God. That, that one is. This is the little rock, the silah. All of the things to do with the world and all of the, the, the graven images of the, the, that Isaiah 44 speaks of. Well, all of the people who are to do with that are going to sing. They're going to come. And, and sing of God's glorious things and come to the rock. So Isaiah declares it was the same in his time as it was in Moses' time, as it was in the Apostle Paul's time, as it is in our time. The same truth can be shouted from the mountains by those who know it so that others might be called to the glory of God's ways. So you can see we've got the law being quoted and we've got the prophets being quoted. But back to um, Acts chapter uh, 17. We've seen in verse uh, 24 and 25, we've, we've quoted uh, those verses, read them through a few times about God stamping really clearly that he is the creator. He doesn't dwell in your temples or anything that you've made with your hands. But then we have verse 26. He hath made of one blood all nations of men or to dwell on all the face of the earth. Why do you think the Apostle Paul says you've been made of one blood? Remember Deuteronomy talked about the blood? Well, there's only one way you could understand that verse, and that is that that is, of course, referring to Adam. We're all descended from Adam and Eve, the first man and woman who God created and breathed into them the breath of life. We're all descended from them. So that's how we're all, all from one blood. But why not say Adam? Why is it the Apostle Paul is moved to say he hath made us of one blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on the, all the face of the earth? And your nation is itself and its boundaries are determined by God with Israel at the centre, says Deuteronomy. But why one blood? Well, when I was at Athens, I went on a tour. They don't do a tour of the Arian Pygon of Mars Hill because no one seems to be interested in that. But they do do a tour, which you have to pay for. Uh, around the Acropolis and the Parthenon. And as they take you around, the guide that was taking me around said something quite remarkable. She said, if you look in there, that was the temple in which the Athenians believed they were born. They were born from the blood of Athena and that they were special. They were unlike all other peoples of the earth and that they were pure. And this 
introduced uh, the concept, which is known as autochthony. And I'm, I'm sharing this with you, not because you say, oh, well, it's really important to know what the Greeks thought, uh, you know, and, and we have particular interest in it. Well, when God's drawing attention to it, that's when we look outside the scriptures. So here's the idea of autochthony. Right? It's, it's simply the idea is that the Athenians said they were born from the soil, right? They'd always lived there. And they were, they had all these cicada-shaped ornaments. Cicada's like a little insect that is born out of the earth. Sometimes they can lay there for 17 years and pop up. And the Athenians said, well, that's us. That, that's why we, we, we spring out from the land. And that's why they have the, 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 these temples. Uh, there's the temple of Erechtheion, which is the temple that uh, is about this, this cicada. And you have this idea of the springing out of the earth. And it's in there that the Athenians believed they were born. And this is really interesting because the apostle Paul says, I know what you believe, that from the blood of Athena you were sprung from the earth and you're special. Well, that's nonsense. I'm here to tell you you're no different from any other men and women on the face of this earth and that God has put Israel as a nation at the center. Deuteronomy declares that. Your, the bounds of your nation are, according to Israel, at the center of God's plan. You're not special. You're descended from Adam. Now, some have said, well, we just don't think that they would have known about Adam. Well, in order to, um, to just put that question to bed, I once again suggest you just take a trip to Athens. And you'll see that in recent years, the Athenians have moved the Jewish Museum of Greece. It was further away. They've now put it almost right next to the Parthenon, just down the road. And you can see all of the Jewish history in Greece and Athens. And you will see how they declare there that they've at least got evidence that the, the Jews have been present in Greece and Athens for at least 400 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. So are we really to believe that these people, the Athenians and their strangers who spent their time in nothing else than either to tell or to hear some new thing, had not come into contact with the Hebrew scriptures and studied them and heard them and used their leisure time to debate them and probably uh, deny them and, and uh, ridicule them? Of course not. The Hebrew scriptures would have been known. The Hebrews were there. The Jewish community has been there for centuries by the time the Apostle Paul uh, is inspired to speak these words. So what we've got is a very clear uh, definition that the Apostle Paul is saying, you're born of Adam. You're born of one blood, same as me. And you go right back to the beginning. But you see, the Athenians are known by historians today as, as racists. They, they, they believed that they were elite compared to others. So let me quote from Benjamin Isaac's book. Um, the, the Athenians, who consider themselves to be of pure lineage and occupants of the same land from the beginning of time, it's clear the Athenians were particularly fond of their presumed autochthony. They, 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 they were born out of the soil of Athens and the blood of Athena. Uh, autochthony came to mean that the Athenians had pure blood, the rest of even the Greeks had mixed and tainted blood, but the, the Athenians were special and it was linked with their democracy and the fact that we're all equal one together. That's the, the idea of, of, uh, that we see of democracy where everyone's equal, but only if you're a Greek, only if you're equal amongst us, and everybody else is less. Now you imagine the Apostle Paul standing there saying, I know what you believe. It's well known amongst us. You, you believe in autochthony, that you've got pure blood and that you're special. No, you're not. You're just the same as everybody else. And you were constantly referring to this blood. 
there it is on the screen. This is from the Rutledge Handbook on the Classical and Medieval Worlds. You see how the reference all the way through to blood, blood, blood. Well, the Apostle Paul is quoting that blood. It can be none other than a reference, of course, to Adam. And I'm just going to turn myself to Romans chapter 5. And we find ourselves in this time in which we live having to go to these passages to show those who are Christian, who say they believe the scriptures, but who also believe that we didn't descend from Adam and that there was no such man as Adam. Uh, or perhaps there was, but there were others uh, who, who evolved at the time. And there's all of the ideas and philosophies of men that are juxtaposed with scripture and we're told that they fit together. We have to go back to these verses and say, that's not so. Some have suggested, brothers and sisters, and this is a most serious point, that we should not talk about Adam and Eve being the first man and woman, and of us being born of one blood from them. And they've said that. Some have said, and I've heard it with my own ears, that we'd be thought of as idiots, uneducated fools, if we were to suggest such a thing. What we should stay instead is that if you want to believe Adam and Eve, that's one thing, but you can also believe that we evolved uh, from lower life forms. Uh, and that, that has no bearing on whether we accept the scriptures or not. Is that what the Apostle Paul said at, at Athens when he spoke to the Epicureans who believed just that? He said, I'm going to take you back to Genesis. We're born of one blood. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Romans 5. Uh, verse 15, for if the, the, through the offence of one, many be dead, much more, more the grace of God and the gift by grace, who is by one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and not as, as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation. Verse 17, for if by one man's offence death reigned, by one, much more, they shall receive the abundance of grace. By one, Jesus Christ. We know that they're a reference to 111 all the way through Romans 5. And it is the most serious point. Brothers and sisters, young and not so young, let us never, ever, ever take the route to say, I better not mention Adam and Eve because they might think we're stupid. Uh, they might think that uh, this will be this will put them off. Let us not talk of such things. Let us not talk of one man, Adam, and of death coming through sin. Uh, and us descending from one blood. Let's talk of other things. Well, this takes us right back to the point. This is the instruction from God of how we talk to all the world around us, whether they be an atheist, an agnostic, an evolutionist, or somebody who's uh, religious, uh, Christian or non-Christian. We just declare the truth of the scriptures. It is not up for us to decide what we think would be better to leave out or to add in that it might be more palatable to some people based on our own reckoning. We've seen too much of this. We think it leads to bring people to the truth. We create our own truth. And God says through Moses, I know what you'll do after I've gone. The works of your own hands. Now, we don't make idols anymore with our own hands. We make our idols with the things that we think and the things that we say. We know what idol worship is described twice in the New Testament as covetousness. We want the things of the world. We want to juxtapose them sometimes with scripture. And we have to resist that temptation, remind ourselves 
you might think this is a serious, a simple point, but it's a most serious, simple point at that. Just let the scriptures speak. As we've said, it would be helpful sometimes, as the Apostle Paul did, to know where someone's coming from. So if someone is an atheist, if someone is an evolutionist, it would be helpful to understand what they're actually saying, not what they're not saying, because that would put them off and, and make it difficult for us to discuss the scriptures with them. So we're not saying that we don't try and understand where someone's coming from and show empathy, because the whole point is that we're trying to show people the truth that God has declared, not the truth that you think might be appropriate or that I think might be appropriate. What has God said? And this concept of autochthony was put to bed by the Apostle Paul. Of one blood you are, you Athenians. You're not special. You're just the same as me. And we have the same hope together as one through the one God that created the heavens and the earth. And what was the result, brothers and sisters, of these Words from the Apostle Paul, quoting so wonderfully throughout the scriptures. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Why did he depart? Well, he said what the scriptures had said. And some had laughed at him. And others said, well, we'll, we'll perhaps talk, talk to you again. So he says, right, I'm going to move on. And chapter 18, we find that he departed from Athens and he goes to Corinth. He's going to carry on to spread the word of the scriptures. And when you think to yourself, you know, here's <laughs> the apostle Paul, possibly on trial for his life, on his own with his brethren, not with him standing around with all the Areopagites, who were the judges in the Arian Pygon, with all of the Agora idols and the Acropolis and the Parthenon all around him. And they were all laughing at him. They would have probably, in, there's a wonderful echo that goes around there, they'd have probably heard the laughter all around. There was a man who was trying to save them. He could have left them aside, but he loved them so much, showing the love of Christ, that he says, I'm not, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to try and save you. And that's got to be our motivation, brothers and sisters, not to call people out and say, you're wrong, you're wrong, um, and you need to know you're wrong. The, the outcome has to be we want to show people what is right and true to come to God's word. That's, that's our motivation. That's our love. And sometimes it's not always perceived that way. Sometimes people think that we're only interested in just trying to be right. And if that's how some feel, maybe we need to be a bit more careful just how we express what we say. Not changing the word of truth, of course, but I mean, just just the way we speak God's true and holy word to show them that we're doing it because we love them. And we want to share the hope that we've got. We want to share the forgiveness of sins that we so desperately need with them. And so the Apostle Paul, in his love, endured that mockery. And he's just like so many before. Genesis 19 records, it says that Lot seemed as one that mocked to his sons-in-law. And he said, come out. But they would not. When Hezekiah sent his posts, saying, come down, keep the Passover in the second month, that most special of Passovers, which speaks in every detail of the Gentiles being called. We see that in Ephesians. Every detail, it's the Gentile Passover. They laughed him to scorn and they mocked him. 
He was just trying to help them come to the true God. In Nehemiah, when they heard they were going to build the wall, they mocked the Jews. Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, Matthew tells us, that they mocked him on that cross when he was dying for them. Apostle Paul was in the company of all those faithful in ancient time when they mocked him, even in the company of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Galatians tells us, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. God isn't mocked, but we can be. And when we are mocked, brothers and sisters, for saying, I do believe that Adam and Eve were the first man and woman, that Adam was made from the dust of the ground and Eve from his rib. I do believe that death came by sin and that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death, provided a way out of the way of sin and death. I do believe all of the scriptures. And if people laugh at us and mock us, then we are in the company of the Apostle Paul. We're in the company of Nehemiah, of Hezekiah, of Lot, and of the Lord himself. So let us not lose heart when we are mocked or lose strength and spirit within us when we think, well, we better not say anything because I can't stand to be mocked again, whether it be in person or online. Whether I'd be able to see what's been written about me or find it sometime later. We're in the company of all these faithful when that happens. But look at the remarkable response that we find beyond those that mocked. When Paul departed uh, from Athens, it says in verse 34, how be it certain men clave unto him and believed. What a remarkable statement. Certain men clave unto him and they believed. Among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The words of the Apostle Paul did not fall idly to the ground, as they did in some places. Some heard. And we know the demonstration of God's word does not always lead to success. Yeah, we've had some absolutely wonderful um, preaching success through through uh, many of the, the preaching that's going on to our Iranian friends at the moment. That is remarkable. But that's that's new for a long time. Ecclesias would say some Ecclesias have more baptisms now in a month than some have had in some people's whole lifetime. So we're in a wonderful privileged position at the moment. But the Apostle Paul visited some places where no one listened. The word of God was still carried forth and God's will was done. It was preached. Sometimes people don't respond, but happily here, some did believe. But God's only given us two names. There was a whole group of them, but there was two that God wants us to know about. One is Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the other is called Damaris. Now here is Dionysius. There he is. You can go and see him in the British Museum among the Elgin marbles. This is the god Dionysius. He is the god of wine. And revelry is uh, linked to the, the Roman equivalent, which is Bacchus, and all of the dreadful things that were involved with that worship. But here was a man who was absolutely steeped in Athenian thinking, not only because his name was Dionysius, named after the Greek god of wine and drunkenness, but also because he's an Areopagite, which means he's one of the judges. 
He's one of the most senior men in Athens. He's one who was supposed to be sitting there judging Paul. And he hears the word of God expounded to him. And he believes. What a statement. What an incredible statement. And if you go to Athens today, you will see that they make a lot of Dionysius. When I was uh, having a tour around, the lady said, tour guide, she said, and there's the cathedral to Dionysius. Only he listened to the Apostle Paul. He alone. And I had to ask her, just to be clear, I said, was, was he the only one then that listened to the words of the Apostle Paul? Yes, she said, the only one. And I kept my silence. I felt like I should have shouted from the rooftops then and said, you do greatly err, not knowing the scriptures. Because the scriptures tell us that there was a woman named Damaris, but you don't care about her because she's a woman. And her name means something like a heifer. She may well have been very low stated uh, uh, indeed. It may be she wouldn't even be up been allowed to go into the Areopagus where all these mighty men were listening to the Apostle Paul. Maybe she sat in one of the nooks and crannies which you can hear nearby and she was hearing Paul's words echo over the top. And she believed the two ends of the spectrum, the mighty man of Athens, steeped in its, in its way of life and its revelry and its philosophy. He believed and Damaris, but only he is remembered. If you go to Athens, you see the Roman Catholic Cathedral to Dionysius the Areopagite and the Greek Orthodox Church is a huge thing to Dionysius the Areopagite. But there is no remembrance of Damaris. And in that they show themselves that even today they think like men. They are respecter of persons. But God says, I respect Dionysius the Areopagite just the same as Damaris, who has no title after her name. She's probably a servant woman, and together they are equal in God's terms of salvation. Not one jot or tittle was Damaris behind Dionysius. And God is here showing that even though men only remember Dionysius, they are both remembered in God's book of life. The great and the not great, the rich and the poor, all of it matters not to God. It only matters whether you believed or not. And there was Damaris and others with them. And, you know, when we look back at the scriptures, you look at uh, the, the Hezekiah's feast, and he mocked him. It tells us there, doesn't it, that, that there were certain of Manasseh and Zebulun who humbled themselves and they came to Jerusalem. So there are sometimes the remnant who came. And these are the two who came, uh, who were named by, by a heavenly father and many others besides. And the apostle Paul then departs. But we want to just now look at the third set of references that we find from the Apostle Paul's words from the Old Testament scriptures. From the words that he spoke from Deuteronomy and Isaiah, some believed Dionysius, Damaris and others beside them. But there are other words that he spoke and that's from our reading that we had in Psalm 96. So I'll put them up on our, on our slide. So why don't, we, why don't we go to Psalm 96? I think this is really important because it's a, a type that we see all the way through the New Testament. So often when we do our studies of God's holy word, we find references to the three parts of the Hebrew scriptures. The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kethubim. The law. Deuteronomy in this case, 
the Nevi'im, the prophets, Isaiah in this case, and the writings in this case, for example, Psalm 96. What words will we speak, whether they be Stoic or Epicurean or Athenian, Jew, Gentile, Muslim, or any religion? What words will we speak? We speak the law and the prophets and the writings, the gospel message. So look at Psalm 96. This psalm is about declaring God's glory to the Gentiles. And we know that that was done by the Apostle Paul, shouting from the rooftop, from the mountaintop um, in there in Athens. So Psalm 96 uh, when they're singing this new song, and that, by the way, is the I think it's the reference to the song that we saw in Isaiah 42, the song that will be sung by those who cast aside their idols. Verse three, declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. Verse 10, say among the heathen, the nations that Yahweh reigneth, the world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. There's going to come a time. When the Lord returns, when he's looked past all the things of the flesh for long enough and he no longer holds still, but he instead sends his son, there's going to come a time when his glory is going to be marvellously declared among all peoples and all the nations will know it. And verse five, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord or Yahweh made the heavens. Exactly the argument of Deuteronomy of Isaiah, of Acts 17. People will know in the end that all the things that they have made with their hands or all of the intellectual uh, pursuits and their thinking, the things which their hands have made, God's going to cast them aside and they'll know that they're the idols of the flesh and they will go to the God who made the heavens and they will know that he did make heaven and earth and Adam and Eve were the beginning of his creation. And verse 7 Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people, give unto the Lord glory and strength. The kindreds of the people, what has Acts 17 said many times? We looked at it. The bounds of their habitation, all the peoples of the earth are mentioned. They're all going to know that God is going to come to judge the world righteously by the man that he will send, the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is in verse 10. He shall judge the people righteously. And Psalm 96, verse 13, he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Acts 17, 31, he will judge the world in righteousness. What a time that will be. And Psalm 96 concludes by saying he's going to judge the people with righteousness and the people with his truth. Now, your margin will tell you that the word truth is faithfulness. The Lord Jesus Christ in his faithfulness and in his righteousness will judge the entire world. And it's by that man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith has been offered to you and I and to all people on the face of the earth by his resurrection. Almost truly, he has been raised and now is at the right hand of our heavenly father, waiting for the time when he will command him to return to the earth. There we see again. The Apostle Paul, when faced with great distress, as he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, it was absolutely full of it. And it wasn't just the, the bricks and the mortar and the things that they'd made with their hands physically. It was also the things that their hands had made in their heads and all of their philosophy and their way of thinking. And he says, I'm going to declare to you from the law, from the prophets, from the Psalms, the one true God. The one whom even 
Israel are currently unmindful of. You too are unmindful. You are, un you are unknowing of him. Him declare I to you, the Gentiles. And brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we are some of those who've taken hold of the salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of salvation made possible by that man who will come to judge the world in righteousness, even the Son of God. So let us hopefully be uplifted by these wonderful things. Athens is still there. And the words that were given at that time can still be read in every corner of the world now, not just in that place. Our Heavenly Father caused it to be recorded and written. And now in every part of the world, all can read of the truth that is there. May it be that in the time that remains to us, we are like Paul, declaring the word of God, the simple word of God, not adding, not taking away, but declaring his word. And may it be that there be few left who will believe and will join the number and be ready and waiting for our Lord and Master when he returns. And we pray that time may come so very soon. chapter 17 where, where, do, where does that come in the nine speeches that we find in the acts of the apostles this is the first one that we get to the gentiles it's paul's second recorded speech and he's giving it to the gentiles in 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 athens the center of learning in the greek world it's on his second missionary journey as we can see uh, when he goes through here he returns there later and while he is uh, waiting, it tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, while Paul waited for them, that's for, for Silas and Timothy in verse 14, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. So he's in a place where he's on his own. He's waiting for his brethren to come to him that they might preach together. But he's so stirred up in his spirit by what he sees that he has to speak. What an exhortation is that for us, brothers and sisters, even on our own, we need to be in a position where we can be so stirred up by the things that we see around us that we need to declare the truth. And we know that he goes out and declares to different groups of people. Verse 17, he disputes in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And verse 18 tells us that there also were the philosophers which was the center of Greek life in Athens at the time, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And we know that verse 21 tells us what they used to enjoy doing. The Athenians and the strangers who come from far to enjoy uh, in the debates, they spent their time, that's their leisure uh, in the Greek, in nothing else but to tell or to hear some new thing. This was their enjoyment of the time. It is a slightly different world in which we live in today. You've got stories of uh, ecclesias when they used to hold lectures a century ago. Everyone would come from the town because there was very little else to do. Not so these days. But in, in the times 2,000 years ago, this was their leisure activity. Let's hear new things. What was about to be declared to them was not something new, but something that was the original truth. 
from the beginning of the creation that had always been true, but that they had forgotten. They call the Apostle Paul, of course, a babbler. He's a base fellow. Let's let's see what he has to say, because he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods. Now, that's a very serious indictment in ancient Athens. If you were to come there and be a setter forth of strange gods, you might say, why would that be serious in this place where they worshipped many gods? Well, it's known in antiquity to Socrates. This was uh, about 400 years before the Apostle Paul was in Athens. But he was reported, I'm not going to read all the words, but he was reported uh, to the authorities because it was said that he didn't believe in some of the gods of the Athenians and he introduced new divinities. So Socrates was was sentenced to death and he, he drank a cup of hemlock and died. So there's a suggestion, perhaps, that the Apostle Paul was on trial for his life. He wasn't just taken to hear some new thing. They'd taken him to the Areopagus to trial for his life, as had been happened before, for those who set forth new gods. Uh, that's what Socrates did, and he died for it. Now, the Areopagus is no ordinary place that the Apostle Paul was taken to. That is the chief court of the Greeks. And it was there that you would be taken for the most serious offences uh, that would result in a capital penalty of death. So the Apostle Paul is taken there. Um, and it's there that he will contend for his faith. Now, just uh, to make us all quite aware of how important the um, Athens is, if you go on the Humanist UK website, you'll see that, you know, the Greeks are the forerunners of modern humanism. They're the ones who began that philosophy. Uh, and the whole idea is the time to live is now. And that's obviously something believed by all humanists. There's nothing beyond this life. So whether you were a Stoic or an Epicurean, which we'll come to hopefully in a bit, the whole point is it's all about now, enjoying yourself. And one of their leisure activities was to learn new things. And it's fascinating that our Heavenly Father has recorded here for us uh, the preaching that was done in the center of human thinking. That's why it's so important for us to know how the Apostle Paul was inspired, was moved to speak to these men and women. Because we are speaking to the same men and women today, men and women who some, as we see, are religious, some are irreligious, but all have this idea of living for now. How, how would we approach people, perhaps people who we feel maybe uh, are not too familiar with the scriptures? What is the basis by which we should commence to preach them? Well, here's the Apostle Paul, possibly on, on trial for his life. And there he is in this incredible place. Now, if you haven't been to Athens, I thoroughly recommend it. After Jerusalem, I do believe it's my most favorite place on the earth. Because you can go there and stand exactly where the Apostle Paul stood in, in, in his inspired words to the Athenians. Now, what you have on our screen here, which I'm not going to attempt to do the red, red dot uh, button on, otherwise it's definitely going to break. You'll see the Areopagus in the middle. That's where the Apostle Paul stood. It's a massive rock. Now, in ancient times, if you go there, they've, they've, they've suggested how there could have been a building on there. They think there was a building that was the courtroom, but it was an open, open air courtroom. But nothing is left of that now. You can just see this bare rock. You look down from the Areopagus, where the Apostle Paul stood, to the Agora, the marketplace where all of the gods were based and still are. And then if you pan round to the right, you see the Acropolis, that huge rock upon which is based the Parthenon 
which is the central temple of the Athenians. It's all still there today. So you can see on your screen there, that is uh, Mars Hill. That's the Arion Pygon. Now, it's just like a car park next to you. You don't have to pay to go in there. You just walk in there. The most interesting thing to us in Athens is free. And you can zoom in a bit and you can see. There it is. There would have been a structure on there, probably open air structure. And the Apostle Paul is standing there on that very piece of rock. You can go and see it today. Now, if he looks down into the Agora that we saw on our map, that's what you would see. It's uh, You can see the modern buildings further back, but you can see all of the Agora and all of the idols are still there and some of the larger restored temples. And you know where it tells us here, ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions or your worships, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Where he was passing through was down there in the Agora. And you can do that today. And the ancient pathways have been restored to give you a sense of what it would be like. You can see some of the idols that are there now, and some of them, uh, where they've they found um, more, they've, they've installed more recent inscriptions to tell you what each one. Here's, for example, the altar of the twelve gods, which you'd walk past, and the altar of Zeus potentially for this this place. Uh, here's uh, one of the containers of the offerings uh, of, of the dead, which of the dead, which pre precedes uh, when the apostle Paul was there by five centuries. So that would have been there when the apostle Paul was passing through, and. Alongside all of the little idols, you see the larger temples which are restored. This one's the Temple of Hephaestus, which is down there, and the Temple of Zeus, one of the main gods. Now, that's when you look down into the Agora. As we said, here, if we are the Apostle Paul now, and we've looked left, now we pan right, there's the Acropolis, that massive, impressive structure. And on the top of it is the Parthenon Temple, the center of Greek life. It's an absolutely amazing thing to think. That today we can stand and, and we can see what the Apostle Paul saw. You know, what we see in Jerusalem are Turkish walls long after the Lord Jesus Christ, but actually not so in Athens. You actually are there. And this is what the Apostle Paul would have seen. And he declares that all of this is absolute, complete nonsense. Their whole way of life and all of the magnificent structures they built are based on lies. And he calls out their whole way of life. You imagine doing that. He's on his own. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas to come to him, but they haven't come. They couldn't wait. He had to declare this for what it was. Now, in the British Museum, you can see this. This is slightly out of focus, unfortunately. Uh, this is uh, just a photo of the model you have of the British Museum of that place. So there's the, uh, the Acropolis with the Parthenon on it. And there it is. There's the main Parthenon temple. That's that big building. And that's as we'll get to, uh, hopefully, later in our studies, something the Apostle Paul draws attention to. That's where the Athenians believed they were born, right there. And that's so important because we understand the Athenian thought and the Apostle Paul hits it right on the head in the inspired words that he says. Now, if you were to step back from it, you can see how impressive the structure is even today. It would have been even more impressive if the Ottoman Empire, when they, were, they, were, uh, they controlled this area, hadn't stored gunpowder in it and it hadn't gone off. But so it did. And those are the remains. But happily, uh, the British came along and Lord Elgin decided to steal all of the things that have been blown up in the explosion by the Ottomans. And they are there in the British Museum. Now, I have to say, I don't think we pay enough attention sometimes to the wonder of the Elgin marbles. There they are in the British Museum. You see these idols. But that's what they are. They heard the words of the Apostle Paul. 
The words of the Apostle Paul reverberated off these objects and you can go and stand right next to them. And they're so important because one of them is named by the Apostle Paul, which we'll get to. And these are uh, the individual uh, pieces that form the facade of the Parthenon. And they're all taken to uh, the British Museum. And you can see how they're just so full of Greek mythology and all of the nonsense that they had concocted in their beliefs that later was merged with Roman beliefs. And all of the gods are still there. They're all named here without heads and hands, which, uh, you know, is, is apt, really. Uh, but you can go and see every single one. So I do suggest you do that. If you get to the British Museum, go and sit there. They've got some lovely benches. Those of you who get tired in museums, like my Hannah does. You can sit down and you can watch them and you can get your Bible out and you can read Acts chapter 17 so that these idols can hear again what they once heard before. Now, this one is an interesting one. He's a very interesting God. And he's in pride of place there in uh, the, the uh, Elgin Marbles part of the British Museum. We're going to come to him later. So just note him, how he looks, and we'll come back to him later. So I do suggest to you, if anyone wants to jump after, uh, after the COVID stuff's all passed away and you want to jump on a plane to Athens, do go there. But even more simply, do jump it down to the British, British Museum because it's a wonderful thing to behold. Right, now let's just uh, focus for a moment. We want to get down to God's word. But God has told us in Acts chapter 17, verse 18, that the Epicureans and the Stoics were there. Now, when we study the word of God, we're interested in what God has to say. And the word explains itself. But there are times when God directs us to things that are outside the scripture. And we don't have in scripture any description of the Epicureans and the Stoics. We know that they were the ones the Apostle Paul was debating with or talking to here. Who are they? Well, just in the, in the briefest uh, of moments, just to look at the, the Stoics, we, we know that they were the ones who were Stoic, right? So they, they, they believed you had to have self-control, but you still had to find your own value in this life. The Epicureans believed, you know, pleasure is a goal in itself, but you still got to try and find value in this life. But there's something more than that. Let me just uh, bring up what I find is a very helpful uh, text that's been written uh, by Anthony Long. Right. So he's talking about the Epicurean, the Stoic schools of philosophy and how they are at odds with one another. Right. So it says uh, Epicurean science allows the universe to contain divinity. Right. So you can contain a God. But what it excludes is the notion that these superior beings have any interests in running the world or attending to our lives. An intelligent designing divinity is not needed in order to supplement the science. So the Epicureans said, yeah, we, we think they could be gods. Uh, we're all surrounded by them, but they have nothing to do with us. They're separate from us. We need to find our own way through life. And they said they think that everyone's natural desires for pleasure and freedom from pain can provide all that a social group needs to live well. If those desires are shaped by intelligence, it's all about your own thinking and you find uh, what is true. That's why the humanists of today say we love the Greeks. That rational thought finds your own value in life. Uh, look what it says here. The Epicureans uh, today, says Anthony Long, are the unsung heroes of ancient science. They talk about creation and evolution. Did you know that? Did you know that the Epicureans were evolutionists? Apparent evidence for design in nature for example, the complexity of organisms and organs is due not to an invisible guiding hand, but to the determinant ways that matter organizes itself according to strict law. So they said, look, we were involved. How we got here is not the product of God. 
Number six in what they believed is that life and mind are not basic to the world, but emergent properties of particular types of atomic conglomerates. This is really interesting stuff, right? God has told us, the Apostle Paul is talking with Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans said, even if there are gods, they have no interest to us. It looks like there's evidence for design and creation, but there's that there's there's no need for God's individual uh, invisible guiding hand. They, they brought themselves together. The Epicureans, it says, were at great pains to defend these propositions and to rebut the evidence Platonists. And that's the Stoics as well advanced in favor of intelligent design. Just one more slide uh, of, of the nonsense of the Greeks. Unimpressed. By Epicurean mechanism, the Stoics elaborated a cosmology that is also a teleology and ethic. What is put here really wonderfully by Robert Long is this. I'll just read you the last paragraph. In classical antiquity, then, philosophers were theologically divided in fascinatingly complex ways. The great division, as today, was between those who thought that the world is due to a creative, providential and morally directive divinity, and the view that it results from undirected and mindless matter in motion. The Apostle Paul is talking to Stoics who say, we do believe that this was brought about by God and that he's brought us together and that he's involved in our lives. And there's these gods who, who we have interest with. And then there's the others who say, look, there's no such thing as divinity that's, that's uh, uh, brought us together. Uh, evolution uh, or the precursor to it is what they believe. That is the, what's being said here by Robert Long, is exactly as today. Isn't that true? Acts 17, like the rest of the scriptures, is bang up to date. We talk to people exactly with this group of beliefs. Some are religious people, and they believe that God has an effect on our lives, and they might want to read the scriptures. There are others in the middle who believe that perhaps there is a God, but perhaps evolution uh, is at play as well. And we, we look at scriptures in a way that some might be true, some might not be true. And you have others who are complete atheists or agnostics who have no uh, interest in these things. And the Apostle Paul is about to tell us through inspiration how we talk to the world in which we live, because this is exactly our world. I hope we don't miss that point. God wants us to know he's talking to Epicureans and Stoics because that's exactly who we are talking to. There's no one not covered by this definition of the world that the Apostle Paul was speaking to. How would you go about it, brothers and sisters? If you were Paul and you were put there and you were put on the spot and you say, you come up to the highest court in the land and you tell us what you believe. And at the end of it, you might be put to death like Socrates before you. What would you say, brothers and sisters? Where would you start? Well, the scriptures, of course, gives us God's record that he wants us to have of what the Apostle Paul said. Now let's have a look at that. How would we approach it? Would we accommodate the thoughts of the Greeks and say, well, you, you couldn't possibly understand the wonderful detail of the gospel, so I'll change it a bit. I'll leave bits out. Uh, you know, uh, maybe I'll, I'll try and find a way that um, is not, it's not so, so unpalatable to you. That might be the way we might naturally think of it. What does the Apostle Paul tell them? He says, well, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. And we have a way marker here in scripture of where the Apostle Paul is quoting from under inspiration. So let's just have a look at this one for a second. So Deutero, uh, sorry, Acts 17, verse 26, it tells us there, the Apostle Paul says, He's made of one blood all nations of men that dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Now we all know 
that if we look at our margins of verse 26, it will tell us where that's quoting from. God has determined the bounds of the habitation of men. Our margins take us right back to Deuteronomy 32. And what we'll just look at for a moment is that all of the words of the Apostle Paul are taken from Deuteronomy 32. Why, you might ask. These are the Greeks, are they not? How often do we hear that the gospel message in the New Testament has nothing to do with the Old Testament? Would you have started in the law of Moses to speak to the Athenians? Well, God moves Paul to do just that. So I'm going to go back to, to Deuteronomy 32 because we have to see the context. Is, is anyone still with me? Because I, I can't see a thing. I can see Luke. Luke, can you put your hand up if you are you still? Can you hear me? Yeah, OK. Deuteronomy 32. Right, let's go to Deuteronomy 31, because what we'll find amazingly is that the context of Moses's words are exactly the context that Paul is in in Athens. How so? Because Paul is speaking to the Greeks, is he not, in Athens? And Moses, he speaks to Israel. How could you possibly say that the context is the same? But look at the context here. So just, just to bring out Acts 17, verse 26, we know is quoted in Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. Say there, so he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So he doesn't say that in, in Athens. Paul says he set the bounds of the nations. But everybody would know, as we'll show later, that he's talking about uh, Deuteronomy. That Israel was put at the centre and the bounds of the nations were set around Israel. And whenever we see a way marker like that in scripture, like a direct quote, we know that's where God wants us to go to see more of what he has said. But just look for a moment then at the um, some of the links. I wanted to put them in, in order, but I, I don't dare build up the slides. So you're going to get them all in one go. So do me a favor and try and uh, not go too far ahead. So look what it says in Deuteronomy 31 verse 29. Moses at the end of writing the words of this law in his book, it says in verse 24, they were finished. What does he do? He commands the Levites um, uh, to, to bring the book of the law and put it inside the ark for a witness against thee. Look what it says in verse 28 of Deuteronomy 31. Gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them, to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Absolute key words next through the works of your hands. Yeah. Is Moses. Amongst all of the elders in 31 verse 28 and 32 verse 7. The elders and the older generations are referenced. And he says, I know that after I go, it'll be the works of your hands that will lead you astray. And we all know how that that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, your hands, Ephesians. Neither is he worshipped with men's hands. Verse 29, for as much as we are the offspring of God. We ought not to think that God is like gold or silver or stone by art or man's device. Three times the Apostle Paul says, it's your works of your own hands by which I condemn you now. And that same message was said to Israel. Moses, desperately sad at the end of his long work. He says, I know what's going to happen. It'll be your own hands. 
which will make your own downfall because you will be making false gods. And he, and he said this to all the elders of Israel, just as he spoke to all the elders of the Athenians. And he quoted um, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, about the nations being set towards the bound of Israel. He tells the Athenians that. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 18. The rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful, and thou hast forgotten God. Isn't that remarkable? What was said in Acts 17, the unknown God, the God that you don't know, that you ignorantly worship, I'm going to declare to you. How is it possible that Moses says that to Israel, they have forgotten God because this is flesh, brothers and sisters. It's exactly the same. When God says to, through Moses, you've forgotten the rock that begat you, you're unmindful. He's as if God is unknown to his own people. And so God says the same to the Athenians. And verse 18, he says, the rock that begets you, you'll know, your margin will tell you if you've got one like mine, the rock that gave birth to you. Acts 17, uh, verse 28. We're told, therefore, in him we live and move and have our being, for we also are his offspring. Right. So he says, we'll talk about that a bit later in our second study, God willing. But the Apostle Paul is saying, even you yourselves and your own poets talk about you being the offspring of God. Well, that's what God said is true. You're the offspring of the God of Israel, the rock that begat you. But you've been unmindful of him, Israel. He's unknown to you, Athenians. Now, verse 20 of Deuteronomy uh, 32 is one of the very few places in the, in the Old Testament where you can find this reference to the word faith in the Old Testament. There it is, Deuteronomy 32, verse 20. You imagine this, the last song of Moses. And he says, they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. No faith. You imagine at the end of all your work. This is what the apostle of Moses has to say to his people. Look where faith comes up in Acts 17, though. Verse 31. Again, you're going to need to use your margins. It says, he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained. Wherefore, he hath given assurance unto all men and that he, he hath raised him from the dead. Now, if you've got a, a margin like mine, where it says given assurance, you'll know that it says offered faith. We'll come back to that. Our Heavenly Father offers faith to us all based upon what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he raised him from the dead. And when you looked at those acts, uh, act speeches, those nine act speeches that we put up at the start before the computer collapsed. If you look at that, what's the common theme? The resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. Whether he speaks to Jew or Gentile, Athenian or Roman, the resurrection. By that, he offers faith, says Acts chapter 17, verse 31. But Moses says, there's no faith in the children of Israel. But because of that, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, the Lord shall judge his people. We know that Acts 17 ends in the same way, don't we? He shall judge the world in righteousness. God is the judge, says Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. Uh, the Lord shall judge his people, and they shall say, where are their gods? Right. Remarkable thing. Now look at this, uh, verse 43 of, uh, of Deuteronomy uh, 32. You will avenge the blood of his servants. There's a reference to blood. We're going to come back to that. But note that the Deuteronomy 32 talks about blood. And so does Acts 17, verse 26, the blood, the one blood of all men. And 
wonderfully, we know this very well. Verse 43 of Deuteronomy 32, God says, Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. We all know, don't we, that the with isn't there. That's in italics. It's not in the Hebrew. God is actually saying, Rejoice, ye nations, his people. Acts chapter 17, verse 27. That they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Apostle Paul is saying, those of you who want to know the truth, the one truth, go back to the law that God gave through Moses. Because he said then that the nations were being his, would, would be his people. They were going to rejoice because they were going to join the house of Israel. And so he says to the Athenians in his day, look, just seek God. He's not far from you. You can find him. So what we have is an absolutely amazing mirror between the two. Here is Moses speaking to God's special chosen people who've seen all of his wonders and his miracles. And Moses has been through all that with them. And he gives the very same message to them that he gives to the Athenians at the time of the Apostle Paul. It's absolutely obvious how we approach People, brothers and sisters, when we meet them, we say the same gospel that has been the truth ever since the beginning of creation. We don't take anything away by saying, oh, they couldn't understand that. That's, that's too difficult. That's something that is beyond their capability as Athenians. We just speak the word. Let the word speak. We can do none else. And the inquiring mind will seek God and find it. So what we have is Moses saying, I know very well what is going to happen after I go. It's going to be the work of your hands, which is going to take you away. And the Apostle Paul says, same thing. It's only the remnant. It's only the few. Now I want to tell you something which I think is absolutely remarkable. And uh, if this doesn't send a shiver down your spine, something wrong with you. Uh, I respectfully suggest. Because what is Deuteronomy 32 known as? The rock song. Why? Because the Lord God is referred to as the rock. I've got it highlighted in my, my version. Here he is, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. He is the rock. And I've got it there on our slide. That's the Hebrew word, sir. God is the rock. And there he is in verse 15. You have likely esteemed the rock of your salvation. You can see that they, they, the translators know this is God because it's got a capital R, hasn't it? And there he is, verse 18. Of the rock that begat thee, thou art unmindful. You've forgotten the rock of Israel, haven't you? Verse 30. Except their rock had sold them. All right, so there's the rock with a capital R. That's the Hebrew word, sir. We also have, in our English versions, unhelpfully, a number of rocks, which are not the Hebrew word, sir. They're the Hebrew word, silah. And they are written in our authorized version or English versions with a, with a little r, because it's not God. Who are they? They're the idols. Look, for example. Um, uh, let's have a look at um, Deuteronomy 32, verse, let's have 30 and 31. Except their rock had sold them and the Lord had shut them up. For their rock, little r, their silah, is not like our rock, our tzur. Verse 37, he shall say, where are their gods? Their rock, their silah, in whom they trusted. So in Deuteronomy 32, you have an interplay between the two rocks. 
They both mean a stone in Hebrew, but one is Sir, the solid rock of almighty God, which they have been unmindful of and which they will forget. And Deuteronomy 32 contrasts that with the rock in which they trusted. Verse 37, their gods, the false idols, you know, all those things, those Elgin marbles. That's the same thing. The apostle Paul is moved to say God said the same thing to Israel. You already have a rock. It's almighty God. But you choose the work of your own hands, these little silah, these rogs in which you trust. Instead of having faith in God, you have faith in yourself and what you've built and what you've made. And do you know why this is most remarkable of all, brothers and sisters? Do you know what the Arion Pygon really means? Mars Hill, we translate it in English sometimes. It's the Areopagus in English, the Arion Pygon. Do you know what that really means? It means the rock of Aries. Is that not remarkable? The Apostle Paul is standing on the rock of Aries, the chief god of the Athenians. Now, of course, Mars is the Roman equivalent. That's why it's translated sometimes as Mars Hill. But it is Aries because they're in Athens. And this is the rock of Aries. The place of the judgment seat in Athens is called the rock of Aries. Isn't this amazing? So what God has done is he'd taken the Apostle Paul and he said, you go to the rock of Aries. You go to the center of the Greek religion and you stand on their rock in whom they trust. That's the Sila of Deuteronomy 32. And you, Apostle Paul, you contrast him with the rock of God, the rock of Israel, that sir, which can never be moved. And where is the Apostle Paul saying it? You know, we saw on our slide at the start. Let me try and go back to it just to just to give you the, the visual imagery. There he is. There is the Apostle Paul standing upon this huge rock. And he's saying to everybody, you all think this is the rock of Aries, don't you? I'm here to tell you, you can't put your trust in your rocks. But there is a rock. It's the God of Israel upon whom you can trust. And then from him is life and resurrection and hope. And so we've got absolutely wonderful interplay between what uh, what is said by the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago and what Moses said a millennia before that is the gospel message has always been the same. So, brothers and sisters, when we speak to interested friends, whether they be Epicureans and have no need for God in their lives, whether they be Stoics who are religious but have false doctrine and believe things that are not correct, or whether they're in the middle, we speak the same gospel message. We speak the words that Moses was given. We speak the words that the Apostle Paul was given. And in that way, we don't have difficulty with saying, what should I decide? Well, maybe I shouldn't say that. Or maybe I should add this. Or maybe I should add lib a bit and add a bit more of my own words. <laughs> how foolish would we be and how difficult. Just speak the word of God. The Apostle Paul says, your rock is not as our rock, Deuteronomy 32, verse 31. And the discerning mind would have gone back to Deuteronomy 32. Now, some have suggested. Is it possible the Apostle Paul, you know, this this quote that's well known about the bounds of the people. Can it really be the Apostle Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy? The Athenians would have not known, would they, about the Lord Moses? Uh, hopefully, as we go through, I want to prove to you categorically, the Athenians knew very well indeed 
about the law of Moses and of the Jewish scriptures. So if you ever hear that, which I have, you can tell them it's absolute nonsense, could not possibly be the case. But even if they didn't know uh, the Greek, the Hebrew scriptures, that doesn't matter, does it? We might meet somebody who doesn't know the Bible. OK, well, the first thing they're going to know about it is what you tell them. Can't tell them something else. Just tell them God's word. Let God's word speak. So the most remarkable thing is put out here by the Apostle Paul. Here is the rock, the God of Israel. And turn away from your rock of Ares, for there is no hope in him. <clears throat> right. So let's go back to Acts chapter 17. I'll turn that uh, back up. I have absolutely no idea what's happening with the time because uh, we, we, we lost some time at the start. Ben, any thoughts? Just keep going till you finish, Mike. OK, well. I'll be honest with you, I have not got a clear demarcation between the two talks. So uh, we'll need to, I'll just, I'll just decide when we want to take a break then, okay? And if anybody wants to take a break now, they can throw something at the screen or something and uh, we'll, uh, we'll take one then. Right, so let's get back to Acts chapter 17. So what we've shown, hopefully very clearly, is so much of the language that the Apostle Paul is inspired to say comes straight out of God's words, which he'd already given Moses. Uh, and the same exhortation that had to be given to Israel is the same exhortation that had to be given to Athens. And the same thing that we need to say today that you and I need to pay attention to. And anybody we talk to uh, needs to be paying attention to as well. But what we want to look at for a moment is the Apostle Paul quoting from in verse 28 from Greek poets. So look at this, Acts chapter 17, amongst all of the words that he's saying from Deuteronomy, he does quote Greek poets. Why would that be the case? Well, God has directed us to look into these things because he said this is from the poets of the Greeks. So Acts chapter 17, verse 28. In him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So. Apostle Paul says, look, we've got some commonality, haven't we? Us and probably the Stoics, because you agree that in, in this one God that's determined the bounds of the habitation of the nations and that God that's made all the world and everything in it. Verse 24, that's the same God uh, that it causes us to live and move and have our being. Even your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Now, um, we know that those are two poets that he quotes, not one. That first phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, that's from uh, Epimenides, many say. It's, uh, it's something that's known in antiquity. The second, for we are indeed his offspring, is from a poet called Aratus. Now, very little is known about Aratus at all. In fact, all his works are lost, except one. And I think that's because God quoted it. God has preserved it, that we might see where the Apostle Paul is quoting. For we are indeed his offspring. So here's, here's um, Aratus's poem that's preserved. He talks about Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken. Every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbour are full of this deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are indeed his offspring. So the Apostle Paul is saying, I know what some of your beliefs are. And you believe that you're from Zeus and you, you've got a, a religiosity about you. I'm going to try and bring you back now to the true God. So I think this is really, really, really important. 
because what we have in scripture is an instruction that sometimes it's helpful to know where somebody is coming from when we are preaching to them. The Apostle Paul is not interested in just condemning them and burning them all with fire from heaven, is he? He is interested in convincing people of the truth, that they might seek God, that they might be saved as he is. This is about trying to save people. So he says, right, <clears throat> he's moved by God to, of course, speak all of God's wonderful words and not add or take away from God's words. But it's helpful here. We've got some divine instruction to know where our interested friends are coming from. Because the Apostle Paul is moved here to quote from two of their own poets. That's interesting, right? When you speak to somebody who's a Muslim, do you know much about uh, Muslim faith? A lot of our brothers and sisters are learning a huge amount now. And those who are working with the Iranians have said it's actually really interesting to know where they come from and to know that they're monotheists and to understand a lot about where they're thinking because then they might have questions that you can draw them to the scripture that answer those specific questions. So it's really interesting. And we have now an instruction that says, it's, it's not a wrong thing to say, well, OK, I want to understand your misunderstanding so that I can bring you to the true God. That's a wonderful instruction that we have here. And I'm not saying that we, we spend our time delving into men's philosophies and their falsehoods. But an idea of where an interested friend is coming from is really helpful. If you're like me, you might find it extremely difficult to uh, to know how to uh, to approach people. But to just say, right, you might have this question, get them to the word and speak the word. It's so much simpler. And that's what the Apostle Paul has moved us to here. We've got in Acts chapter 17.